0: Now that I'm shining. You want to envy me? Envy me? I ain't really wanting right now, but this is what it finna be. This is what it finna be. Tell me why you want to hate? That take too much energy. Why you yeah. That's the kind of hate that turn friends into enemies. Here we go again. Here we go again, man. Here we go again. Man, here we go us. Uh, here we go again. Here we go again, man.
1: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Joe Lumen. Joe is a Colombian-born pastor who teaches on deconstructing and decolonizing Christian faith. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Jelani. Jelani is a hip-hop artist from California. You can get connected with both Joe and Jelani and their work in the links in the episode description.
0: Push your have breaks, but this greatness don't stop. But this gift, I think mom and pops. Bruh, I go from box to the block. I learned to say less now. I do a lot and it's no joke. When I laugh to the bank, bruh, it's no joke. Went from flipping eighth to eighth notes. Now Shotty he bounce that ass if I say so. What you hate? Nine out of shine.
1: Today I have Joe Lumen, uh, who not only has a last name that is tough for me to pronounce, but also does lots of things in the world. Uh, I, get, I get the whole last name thing; it's you know, it's it's tough. But regardless, uh, there's lots of things that you do in the world. But I want to know who Joe Lumen is to Joe Lumen.
2: Um, well, have thank you for having me first, and um, yeah, my last name is a Gift of the Patriarchy. So, <laughs> yay for getting a German last name for marrying this white guy. But it's, it's fine. <laughs> I learned to just spell it everywhere I go. Um, I am, I am an immigrant. I am a Colombian-born woman that moved to the U.S. a few years ago, and um, I, you know, I'm a pastor by trade, officially speaking. I'm a pastor, and I am a Uh, Teacher, really. That's what I'm more passionate about teaching and talking about decolonizing faith and theology and having a faith that doesn't harm others. Um, I'm also a mother and I am a dancer. How about that?
1: (laughs) Oh,
2: I know I don't share that often, but yeah.
1: What's your favorite style of dance?
2: Salsa. I danced salsa a lot when I was in Colombia. Took some classes and I, you know, I loved it. And then I moved to the US and they told me I couldn't. So I didn't dance for about 10 years. And now I've like taking wow. it back up and I I love dancing. It makes me so happy.
1: Oh, I love that. salsa is just so like it's so beautiful and elegant and then it like at times can be sensual. Like I love everything about it. It's really great. I would love to learn how to like salsa dance and just even like all of those kind of styles of dance I think are just really beautiful.
2: It's so fun and it's also quite the workout.
1: Yeah. They're moving <laughs> quick.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's I, I hope my kids can learn to salsa dance. They are they're they're okay at it so far.
1: I love that. So uh, one of the things that you mentioned that you do is a sort of decolonizing of faith. And for so many people, uh, including myself, you have been uh, really crucial for our uh, our own decolonizing of our theology, whether you know they're uh, a person of color, whether they're white, regardless, uh, they're, you've been really critical and crucial for a lot of us. Um, and, but before we jump into that, I do wanna kind of jump into a very interesting moment that happened a few months ago that I think is pretty significant. I I don't know how significant it maybe has played out in your own life and everything, but I think for those who have us kind of witnessed it, it was pretty significant. So can you talk a little bit about what happened on Twitter a few months ago? uh, And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And all of that that transpired. Can you kind of talk about what happened and like the aftermath and everything?
2: Yeah. um, Well, I I think you're referring to the you know, a lot of big accounts, just
1: yes, a lot yes. of big
2: evangelical accounts retweeting me. And then I ended up getting all these death threats. Right. Um,
1: yeah.
2: But yeah, it all started because I was having, I, I was just, I was generally talking about, you know, what it is to decolonize faith and nobody was getting offended by that. Uh, people usually just ignore me when they don't like it. But this, this one person said that um, the indigenous people of what we call America now we're lucky to have Christians come and Mm -hmm. do what they did. And I said to him, that's literally white supremacy. Well, he went off Mm -hmm. and he took deep offense to that um, because he felt that I was saying that his faith was white supremacy. And I don't think Christianity per se is white supremacy, but I do think Christianity has been used as a weapon of white supremacy from about 300, you know, in, in the 300s. uh, white supremacy didn't exist but the iteration of Mm -hmm. supremacy Mm -hmm. did and so from that point on christianity has been used mm, as a weapon of empire you know and so but he took offense to that and then um he started like retweeting people started retweeting and talking about how like Jesus was Brown. And if I wasn't aware of that, yes, I am. They were totally missing the point. Um, And you know, it just kept going and going and going. So I created a thread that I don't, sometimes I don't think a lot of people are reading me or a lot of people are going to care about what I'm going to have to say. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, this is just going to clarify my stance. So I created this thread where I was talking about what I believe in and the kind of Christian that I am. And I talked about, I am a Christian that is sex positive and I am a Christian that believes LGBTQ people are divine and I am a Christian that believes divinity is accessible to all of us. Well, they didn't like that. And so (laughs) it got retweeted more and more. And then, you know, like big names with 400,000, 600,000 followers were um, misinterpreting what I was saying and retweeting it. And I think that the most funny thing to me, and by funny, I mean just, Kind of sad too, um, is that they were retweeting, making the assumption that I don't know what you know mainstream Christianity is. That I right, just right. took it out of context, and that I just don't get it. That I'm just yeah. not smart to get it. Um, not as if you weren't that- at one
1: point one like think like theologically one of them at one point.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not realizing exactly that, that I went to school, that I read all the books that they read, that if you come and look through my, because I didn't get rid of all my books because, you know, this is my work still. So if you look through my library, you'll find all the books that they read. You know, I have systematic theology. I have all the books. Um, so it's not that I don't understand their Christianity is that I reject it mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. fundamentally. It's that it is empire. It's that it's abusive. Um, the good thing about that, though, is that a lot of people found my work and a lot of people found, uh, you know, something that they've been looking for. And they, I, I, the way I see it is we find each other. We've all been kind of... <laughs> you know, stumbling through the wilderness is what Mm -hmm. I call it. We all stumble through the wilderness trying to cope with this faith that is both so beautiful and has done so many good things in the world. And at the same time has been such a horrific weapon of empire. And as we stumble through that and those of us who want to, you know, grapple with that and stumble through that and try to reconcile those two realities um we've been finding each other and there is healing and wholeness and there is a movement towards decolonizing Christianity and making it a faith that doesn't harm people Mm -hmm. um but it was fun I ended up having to get cameras for my house and um yeah and a lot of different things online and yeah the the things that I was getting online was they were just really violent Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. speaks a lot of if your faith is not a weapon of empire. How come it's so violent? Mm. Over just mm-hmm. like how come it's so fragile? Over just this woman, this brown woman speaking on the internet, and you lose your minds, send threats, put my address online.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you're 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 actually proving to me that your faith is violent and it's harmful. And I have I don't want anything to do with that. Their God is not. It's of no interest to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I am curious. Uh, did you learn a anything about yourself in that moment. Maybe it's you know something that you've tried to maybe block away, which is totally fine. I I don't know how you've like thought about it uh you know now that we're months beyond it, but did you learn maybe anything about yourself? And if you did, what was it?
2: I think I um more than learn, I was it's it's confirmed that I am comfortable in these beliefs, you know, Mm. that I am comfortable. It was it took me a long time. It took me years to be comfortable and to be bold to be able to say these things actually don't line up with anything. I believe this thing makes me uncomfortable. Um, So I I said it for years in more coy ways inside of the evangelical church, working as a pastor, I would say like, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't know. I don't know about these. Uh, And then when I would get pushback from pastors or leaders, I would shy back. Um, And then seeing that, you know, big people that have huge platforms where, retweeting me and I was not backing down. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a good reminder for me that I, uh, I know what I believe. And I know that I arrived at these beliefs because I have done the work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, this is not something I followed someone through, which is what most Christians inside of the evangelical world are in. You know, I, they believe what they believe because that's what they've been told to believe, but they don't own their beliefs. I own my beliefs. And now I mm-hmm. didn't for the longest time, they were just passed down gifts um, of colonization, really. Mm -hmm. But now these are my beliefs and I own them and I believe in them and I stand by them, regardless of how much pushback I'll get. So um, perhaps I learned that I am, you know, I, I, I believe what I believe. It's not this is not a game for me. This is this is how I live my life.
0: Why you think we change? Yeah, we all go through things and no need to be ashamed. I'm praying one day it's gonna change. So this one is for the fighters, the fight in the lighter. They trying to keep us down but we pump our fists higher. So I'm gonna tell you once again, listen. Yeah, this F ain't nothing but a game. Yeah, it ain't, but a. it ain't nothing but a game. It ain't nothing but a game. Yeah, it ain't nothing
1: but a You've alluded this uh, to this a little bit, but you obviously grew up sort of in that evangelical world and then clearly are not in that world anymore. So I am uh, interested in hearing more about kind of your faith journey and how you grew up in that world and moved to the the sort of decolonizing theology and Christianity world that you're now in.
2: Yeah, I didn't actually. My parents... Oh. um you know, Co- Colombia is quite Catholic, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Catholic ideas and Catholic notions um, of morality and of moral values and rules are very widespread throughout all of our society. So I grew up believing about, you know, believing in Jesus. I, I had my first communion. I I did all the things that Catholics do, but my parents never went to church. Uh, we had Bibles yeah. at home, but I never saw them read the Bible or um, they talked about God. And so did my whole family. Everybody talked about God and everybody talked about this morality, but it was not really, um, something that, you know, not like the Christian evangelical, like this is something that consumes your entire life. Uh, and then when I was 14 years old, my dad moved to the U S and he became a Christian an evangelical Christian. And it, it like, he has a similar personality to mine. Um, we are an all in or not at all in kind of mm. people. Like it's not, we're not like an in-between. It's like, I'm all in, or I'm not in at all. Mm-hmm. So he became that kind of Christian, like reading his Bible intensely and taking all the classes. And, um, and we, would, my sister and I visit him every, you know, six months about, we would come and spend quite a few months with him. Um, so he, we ended up becoming Christians too. And it was like, for me, it was the same way, just like very involved and, you know, and a lot of push back in, inside of me because I was going to college later on in that and trying to enjoy college. But then all this Christianity was telling me not to, but I was in Colombia and I didn't have a community there.
1: Mm.
2: Anyways, I decided to do an internship after college um, to study and to learn and to, you know, be a better Christian, whatever that means. <laughs> and I did, I did an internship in Las Vegas. I was there for two years and I ended up getting hired on staff. Um, and then I decided I wanted to get my master's degree in um, theology and ministry. And I did that at Point Loma Nazarene University. Mm-hmm. And the more I studied, like I was all in, you know, I quit my job. I went and worked full time for a church plant uh, for free. I, I wasn't getting paid. And that was my choice in the middle of, you know, the indoctrination of you give everything for Jesus. Right, right. Um and so I did. And for 10 years, I worked inside the evangelical church, both paid and unpaid sometimes. And I gave everything to it, like my finances, my time, uh, my marriage was really all about like it, it, it centered was the church and Christianity, not Anything else. And my dad was in the same boat. My sister was now a Christian too. My mom was too. Um, So we were all in these like very deeply involved. Um, But then the more I kept studying and the more I kept reading, the more that things just didn't make sense. And perhaps the reason why it was easier for me to walk away. Then it was, for instance, someone like my husband who grew up a Christian and this is a heritage that they proudly hold in their family. You know, we've been Christians for 10 years, we've, for 10 generations, sorry, we've been Christians for 10 generations. They have missionaries in their family line for 10, and they are so proud of these. I didn't have that. You know, we, my family, they are all entrepreneurs and they build businesses. And mm. um, so it was easier for me to walk away because this is not something that was so deeply tied to my identity, though it was so important to me. Um, but I wanted it to be honest. So the more I read and the more I studied, the more I realized that this faith, the evangelical church was not what I wanted. It was not what I signed up for. It was not what made me fall in love with this idea of Christ really. Um, so, so that's why I ended up walking away. And, you know, the more questions I asked, obviously the more ostracized I was too. Mm -hmm. Um, and that also like, Me being ostracized and being treated as though I always told my husband, like we we are treated like we're lepers inside of the evangelical church. And Jesus continues to move towards the lepers, but they continue to move away from us that make them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. The ones that are on the margins. Um, And I said, I'd rather be the leper because Jesus comes for us. He touches us. Um, So so the more that I was treated that way inside the evangelical church, obviously, the more that I was turned off by it. Um, and the more that it just, the cognitive dissonance, you know, like Mm -hmm. we believe in, in, in the poor and we believe in making a difference in society. We believe in heaven on earth, but nothing that we do moves us that way. It's quite the opposite. It's all about empire and building these churches and these names Mm -hmm. and creating these mega empires, mega churches where people come to see a man preach because we believe he has the word of God and not inviting people to engage divinity themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think that my upbringing actually was the reason and is the reason why it's easier for me to just say, guys, this is kind of bullshit and it's this isn't good. This isn't good Christianity. This isn't healthy. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's it's Christianity, nonetheless, but it's not healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I didn't. I mean, Christian hegemony gets us all, but uh, but I didn't grow up in an evangelical home.
1: Interesting. That's a fascinating journey. And then you ended up, you know, from not growing up in that home, you really were deeply in trends for such a long time and then obviously have really unpacked a lot of that and have uh, journeyed quite a bit away from it. So one of the things that I, th- I think that is extremely helpful, and honestly, I- I've probably been most shaped by your own work, is sort of your unpacking of the difference and similarities of deconstruction and decolonization. Mm-hmm. And you think a lot about kind of, you know, how those two relate to one another. So I- I'm really curious, how do you think about the difference and similarities between deconstruction and decolonization?
2: So deconstruction to me, it's just the the work of owning your beliefs, the work of grabbing your beliefs and saying, okay, where is this belief coming from? Where did I get it? Why do I believe what I believe? Um, Is this even real? Uh, You know, is this because a a lot of the beliefs that we've been given are not even real. They are are created. They are makeshift. Um, So the deconstructing work is the work of saying, okay, what is it that I believe? Why do I believe that? Where does it come from? And knowing all of that, what am I going to believe now? Um, Now, that doesn't address decolonizing work, but it could, because some of the beliefs we've been given are beliefs that have been handed down by the process of colonization, uh, of of the literal colonization of Europe into America and Africa and the world, really. Um, So some of those beliefs are entrenched in that. However, there are some um, subconscious beliefs that, you know, subconscious biases that we've been given. Um, and the colonizing is not just the colonizing of beliefs, but also the colonizing of our minds, the colonizing Mm -hmm. of our societies and the ways in which we do life and we engage with one another. And so decolonizing is actually divesting from systems of oppression. So divesting from colonization, which is a system of oppression in itself, but, um, so there is a difference because you can completely deconstruct all of your beliefs, but never divest from systems of oppression. Mm. You can stop believing that gay people are not um, approved of by God. And that doesn't mean that you've decolonized the notions of monogamy and decolonized the notions of relationships and marriage that have been given to us by the patriarchy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so there is, they go hand in hand, but they have to be done intentionally together um, so we can deconstruct and continue to be harmful. So that's why you see a lot of people that deconstruct from Christianity all the way to atheism and they are still trying to convert people to atheism in a mm. way, you know, not convert them is not the way they the word they would use, but mm-hmm. um, that's what they're doing essentially because they haven't deconstructed this idea of white supremacy. The idea of my beliefs are superior and better than, and so they haven't decolonized from my, my beliefs are superior and better than, and that's a gift of white supremacy uh, and patriarchy too, you know, teaching us that. Well, men are superior. White people are superior, and those are internalized beliefs. Nobody really—I mean, there are some people that believe that consciously, but mm-hmm. most people have those beliefs internalized. They are—they are implicit biases that mm-hmm. we have, and so if we're not addressing our implicit biases, the things that we have that, that we're not even aware we believe about ourselves, our relationships, our bodies, society, parenting, um, sexuality, everything—we will just find a way to have systems of oppression inside whatever new belief system we have, uh, it will just look different. So what I I call it is we'll just drop the weapon of Christianity, because Christianity, again, is just the weapon, and we'll just pick up another weapon, but we will continue to do harm, not just to ourselves, but to others. Um, So deconstructing is great because it helps us understand what we believe, but decolonizing is the work of dropping all weapons.
0: It's a cold world that they trapped us in. They keep the truth like it's old-fashioned. I'ma bring it back again. And wear it like this brown skin you found me in. Cause like an elevator, it's going down again. I guess I'm talking to the bound again. Tell them they got a new friend and freedom's got a sound again. Because everybody's trying to gain and trying to find somewhere to put the blame. Why you think we change? Yeah, we all go
1: through things. One of the things, that, and you, you've brought this up, that I, I find really interesting and I think is really crucial to a lot of this work of how we think about deconstruction and decolonization is that a lot of white people like myself who grew up in evangelical circles but then leave evangelicalism, we tend to err towards maybe deconstruction deconstructing our faith but not decolonizing it um and so what would your encouragement or what's a sort of like like what are like maybe first steps for somebody who maybe has moved into that space of deconstruction but hasn't quite moved into a space of decolonization um what what are maybe some of those first steps where you would encourage that person to move towards decolonization and not simply deconstruction
2: I, I think it really does begin with um, addressing our biases, you know, I'm mm-hmm. being honest about what is it that I believe about the other. Uh, not just what is it that I believe about God, what is it that I was made to believe about myself, because people stop there. What is it that I believe that I was made to believe about myself, because healing is important. In, in that you know thinking about what we believe about ourselves but also addressing the 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 things that we wouldn't want to say out loud you know mm-hmm. having the courage really to say them out loud i do i i was made to believe i have this internalized internalized belief that um fat people are ugly i that that's one that i had to deal with you know mm-hmm. uh, that that being fat is ugly i was I was made to believe that that was an implicit bias that I had, that I had to deconstruct and that I had to decolonize from and that I had to look into and say, where is that coming from? Where, how did I learn that? Who told me that? Mm. You know, And how, what has that done for my own, just the way in which I engage with other people? Um, and that is true for everything, so that is true for anybody that is the other in the world. you know what do I believe about women with whoever you are, whatever gender you are, uh, what do I believe about women and what do I believe about men? And we have societal collective biases that we cannot deny, right? So we have this collective bias that that men are smarter uh, and we may not know that consciously, but it doesn't mean that it's being just so like pushed, packed into our brain that when we engage the other, when we engage a man, we have this um, tendency to believe what they say without needing proof. But when we engage a non-binary person or a woman, we want proof. And we say like, mm. Mm. We, we question, you know? So really the work is the work of becoming conscious and becoming aware. Uh, of questioning the thoughts that come into your head without you summoning them in a way mm-hmm. uh, of saying, like, why did I feel that way? I I remember that one time we were talking, I was talking with my husband and I said, how, what, are we, what are we going to do when one of our children says that they are, you know, gay or trans or whatever? Um, and we were talking about how the, the idea of thinking of our daughters being gay didn't bother us, really. It was like, OK, well, we, OK, well, can we meet your girlfriend? But there was this, this hint of discomfort when we thought about our son being gay. Mm. Um, and, and we had to to sit with that, you know, and we were fully affirming at this point, mm-hmm. we believed that, you know, God created people, and he created them with different sexualities. And, um, and still, there was a hint of discomfort with our son, not with our daughters. So especially for my husband, more than for me, but for both of us, really, and just, sitting down and thinking through, I'm not going to bypass that discomfort. I'm not going to pretend it's not there mm-hmm. to make myself look better with myself. Uh, I am not going to continue to be more concerned with the way that I look and the way that people perceive me, but I am going to grapple with the reality of who I am and the beliefs that I have and the things that I have internalized really. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sat with that. What, why do I have a, a hint of discomfort at the thought of my son being gay? And, you know, we've we've worked through that and we've healed from that and we've done the work of thinking through, you know, patriarchy and and what that has taught us about men, really. Mm. Um, But I think that the problem is that it is so it's easier to cope. Um, It's easier to bypass all these thoughts. Uh, And that's the problem with Christianity, you know, unhealthy Christianity. It's a it's a way of coping that is acceptable. Um, So you say like, oh, I'm, I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. Well, that's coping. That's not healing. The work of healing is the work of stopping and becoming aware and actually questioning everything that comes into our brain, you know, becoming conscious beings and not continue to live subconsciously, uh, just kind of moving through the world without questioning everything that's happening. So stopping. Um, and and I think that a lot of the spiritual practices that we were indoctrinated into inside of Christianity, uh, of, of journaling and spending time in the morning to think through things and to, that was for prayer and for, you know, studying the Bible. I don't do that precisely anymore, but I do Mm -hmm. carve time out of my day to journal and to do journal prompts and to think, to just stop and think like what's going on, you Mm -hmm. know, why am I bothered by things? Mm-hmm. Why did what that person say bother me? Why does their presence, you know, make me feel certain things? So I think that the goal is in those spiritual practice to become conscious, not to just pray and spiritual bypass our life, mm-hmm. but instead mm-hmm. to question, you know, what's going on within me and what are things that I have, that I have learned to believe that are not real mm-hmm. and that cause me to see the other as an other.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good way to start.
1: So you, uh, have, you mentioned before that Christianity has been so tied to white supremacy for so very long uh, and other forms of supremacy for so very long. And you've done so much work in your own faith to remove that baggage. And the one thing that I'm really curious about is what is it about Christianity that you still can't get rid of that? Like there's something about Christianity that despite all of this processing and getting rid of all of this baggage, you can't leave the Christian faith altogether. And what is it about Christianity that makes you stay to this day?
2: That's such a good question. And it's one I ask myself often, like, why am I still here (laughs) holding on to this? I after I left the church, uh, we were completely ostracized, lied about, um, it was a painful couple of years of our life. So much so that I, you know, as a coping mechanism, really, I, one time my husband got home, he had to become an Uber driver, um, cause we didn't want to start a new career, but we also couldn't be ethical pastors anymore. And, and we were just so heartbroken and in pain and we needed to heal. So he became an Uber pastor, an Uber, uh, pastor. Yeah. And <laughs> he started, uh, driving at night mostly. And he got home one day at like three in the morning and I was awake and I said, so we're going to Turkey. And he goes, what? I'm like, we need to get out. We need to go to Turkey. So I had bought tickets for us to go to Turkey. So we were there for about five weeks. And or yeah, I don't even it was like five, six weeks. and And we needed that. We needed to get away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was I was hurting um and I was dealing with suicidal ideation um I didn't understand the purpose of my life anymore I had given Mm -hmm. everything to becoming a pastor to to doing these to doing the work of church um and that was a problem doing church and I thought well what am I gonna do now you know I was in my early 30s and I had kids and I couldn't start a new career I we were poor um And I just, I couldn't imagine, I I just didn't see a path forward. Um, So I decided to study. I was like, this has like, everything I gave my life for has to make sense, you know? So I started, Genesis has always been my favorite book. And I started studying Genesis um, one chapter per week for a whole year. So I would read it over and over. I would read it in the Hebrew um, every day over and over again until everything made sense to me. Um, And I started seeing a lot of things that I hadn't seen before, you know, also things that were bad, like people lied to me a lot. Uh, But I started seeing a lot of beauty that I hadn't seen before in Mm. there, a lot of trauma. Uh, I started seeing a lot of genius, really, of whoever wrote this book was just absolutely brilliant. And Mm -hmm. they had this insight into trauma without understanding trauma, without understanding the human psyche, without understanding, you know, the human brain and the nervous system, they did, you know, they were writing about trauma, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started thinking about about the Christ and learning and teaching to somehow about the Christ and about what it meant, the Christ, what it meant to be the Christ. And it was this idea that the Christ is within me, that Christianity is about the Christ. And that means um, divinity embodied, not just in Jesus, but in all of us mm. and the access of divinity and the touching of divinity, uh, and the becoming of divinity in the world. It was exactly that, that pulled me out of, of, uh, a depression really, and pulled me out of suicidal ideation on, and that I found a way, um, really to, to keep on living, you know, uh, by believing that I was the divine, that the divinity was within me too. And so I believe that the Christ saved my life. And so I refuse to let it go. Um, I, I love this notion that we are the Christ. And I see that idea of we are the Christ and we are divinity embodied in so many other traditions, not just Christianity, but Christianity is the way I found it. Um, so I refuse to let it go. And, and the way that I see it is there. Is, there is so many things, there are so many things that... Um, Toxic Christianity and, uh, you know, empire married to Christianity has stolen from so many of us, mm-hmm. um, especially for those of us that are in, um, you know, that come from places that were colonized. So my mm-hmm. whole family is Colombian. I Everybody is Colombian. Everybody. You look as far back as you can. Everybody's Colombian. And of course, there is some Spanish, you know, colonizers in there. But really, we are just Colombian people. Um, and thinking of what it stole my ancestors, mm-hmm. what it took from my ancestors, it, it just colonized Christianity has taken so much from me that I refuse to also give them the Christ. Mm -hmm. I just refuse to. It's mine. It's mine. It saved my life and it's mine and nobody gets to take it away from me. So part of the reason why I refuse to let go of Christianity is that, that it saved my life, the notion of the Christ. And also, uh, and this is just petty I love how angry people get when I say I'm a Christian, and I believe all the things that I believe. Um, And I love it because it forces them to face the fact that they choose to have a religion that harms others. You don't have to. You know, I'm a Christian, and I choose not to harm anybody. I'm a Christian, and I choose to divest from systems of oppression they are choosing not to and that is a choice so i love how angry it gets them not because just they get angry and i actually love that but also because it makes them face the fact that being a christian and being harmful is a choice
0: why I'm looking for wealth It's hard to find when I'm around this way just like a belt So I knock on God's door And I'm looking for help Look, I ain't got nothing in my fridge On my wallet You hollering the struggles Real what you know about it We used to live in a studio apartment Where me, my brother, and father Shared a sheet on the carpet uh, Now I got drive This probably was sparked it I learned how to pray then see through the darkness But hey, I guess it's what it costs To be the boss So like Jesus
1: I ain't doing the- Today I have Jelani with me And Jelani, you are a former musician uh on uh on uh a people's theology. Um, and maybe even the last time you were on it, you it was still probably called Religionless Church. So things have changed yeah, yeah. For, for the <laughs> podcast since then. Uh but what hasn't changed is you still are making really great music. So uh no, we'll you. chat a little bit about the new EP. Um so you messaged me a while back and said, hey, I just finished up with school. Here's a new EP that was kind of my like sort of almost like a senior thesis if you will. Is that right? T- yes, t- tell sorry, me about yes, that. Sir. Like, I, I love the fact that you literally were able to put out an EP as like a senior thesis. So tell me like that whole process, because I'm assuming most musicians are not putting out senior uh, theses uh, as their, uh, 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 sorry, that they're, they're putting out albums as their senior thesis.
0: Right, right, right. Um, Man, I just really, because when I first got to UOP, I was going for music ed.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: I was just kind of like, my heart isn't in it the way I see some of my other classmates' (laughs) hearts Mm -hmm. are. And so I was just like, I need to switch, I need to switch to music management. Um, And so once I did that, and the wheels kept going with that, and then it came time to doing a senior project, my professor was like, okay, what do you wanna do? And I'm just like, well, since I put out one EP, (laughs) dare I put out another you know right <laughs> for the senior project and um he was just like okay you know sit down and 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 was just like where do you want to go with this you know and I'm just like I haven't seen a hip-hop album um really capture what it's like uh what I consider chasing the American dream which is education, you know, Mm. uh, getting that extra leg up in life. Right. Right. Um, and so I was just like, I want to, I want to tell what that, what that has been like for me. Mm. And so, um, throughout, uh, throughout my time there, I had just, I met some people and have been working on these different like concepts and putting stuff together. And then, um, when it finally came down to it, it was just like, all right, this is my three track EP. I put together a listening party. um, And they were the ones that actually gave me a lot of good feedback and Mm. helped pick the album Mm -hmm. cover for the EP. Mm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I love that, I love that. (laughs) One of the things that became really, really apparent to me as I was listening through it is, you really have grown a lot as a musician over the last couple of years. are there any is there anything in particular as you were working on this e p versus your last one that you were like, "I really want to grow in that as a musician
0: uh jazz, ooh hands down, yeah, 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 yeah. still actually. Was birthed out of that. That and um, I was taking a popular songwriting class, mm-hmm. and so our uh, senior project—or not senior project—our uh, final was to write a whole song, or at least that was that was the idea. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't mad if you know it was just like a hook and a chord, or a right. hook and a verse. So I'm in jazz piano, learning it, and just like taking this chord progression through all 12 keys and then one of the keys just hit me
1: Mm. and I was
0: like "Mm, I'm gonna stick this in my back pocket for later (laughs) so that was uh definitely uh one of the biggest things that i uh, tried my best to dive into was jazz a whole lot.
1: Mm. Uh, that was one thing I was also going to say musically that really stood out to me was how smooth, just like the beats are, the the, the chords you. and everything, everything is really smooth. And I would, uh, now, now that you're telling me, a lot of that probably uh, is because of the jazz influence that you have in this EP. Am I right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, hands down, hands down. To me, jazz, you could do a lot with jazz, but you want to make it smooth, you can make it smooth like butter, baby. That's right. <laughs> That's
1: right. I love that. Lyrically, what, what were you trying to explore? Again, you know, this is a, a senior project, you know, sort of like a, a last hurrah, at least for, you know, school. Certainly, let's hope not for, for music. You, you've got, you're so talented. You, de- you certainly need to be making more music. <laughs> but in terms of, you know, like kind of last hurrah, uh, what were you trying to explore lyrically uh, with this album, with this EP?
0: Um, lyrically, I wanted to, I wanted to capture the journey. Um, and so like nothing but a game. Uh, I wrote that before I got to UOP, but perfected the beat when I got there. Um, and so for me, that song was just about like, um, playing my cards, right? These, these are the cards that I've been dealt in life, how do I get to where I want to go, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And then still is just me talking about uh, an unfortunate situation that I encountered while at UOP. As soon as I switched my major, I um, got robbed and got stripped of everything that I Mm. used to make music. Mm. And so with having that situation happened, I just, to me, I wanted to talk about what are what are some things that I feel like I'm still working on, but at the end of the day, I'm still gonna overcome, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then here we go again. It was just me being like, "All right, y'all see me doing my thing now. Uh, let me talk to you. Let me show you a little bit more who Jay is, if you don't know."
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. I love it. I again, I I really sense like clearly those jazz influences you clearly are extremely knowledgeable about a variety of different genres um not just hip-hop but a variety of different genres and you can certainly hear those influences um and i I honestly i think some of my favorite hip-hop artists are the ones who are not overly influenced by hip-hop but are influenced by a variety of different genres i mean kendrick is super uh influenced by like jazz and everything you can certainly hear that um kid like uh chance the rapper all of those guys right they're yes, all really yes. influenced by a variety of different genres and you can clearly hear that in in this album and this ep and it's really really great and so again continue doing it i think you're incredibly talented and you thank belong you. on the level of those guys and i think you know you <laughs> keep plugging away you keep working hard and you'll be of the, you'll be there someday
0: yo thank you thank you i definitely don't plan on stopping right <laughs> I hope you get paid and I play It ain't nothing but a G A M M M It ain't nothing but a game man On my mama ride
1: One of the things I find intriguing about your work is that, you know, instead of necessarily doing theology in like a book or in other, you know, more academic forms, you, uh, you do your theology in a lot of ways on like Twitter, Instagram, and even YouTube at times. What is it about these platforms that you find to be really great places to do and share theology?
2: It's completely about accessibility and mm. um, and completely about disrupting systems of oppression too. So the access to knowledge has been always gate you, you know there ha- there has been gatekeepers to mm-hmm. knowledge always especially inside of Christianity. Um, just looking through history, who had access to the Bible, who had access to the books, who curated the Bible and made it into the book that it is today. It was always the elite. It was always the people that could read, starting there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always the people that, you know, were, were telling others you, you do not have access to these. Um, and there is something about gatekeeping knowledge and gatekeeping access that is, you know, a, it's, it's also a weapon of oppression, of keeping people on the other side, not knowing. Um, so the reason I love to do it, and I love to do it for free. Um, is to disrupt systems of oppression, namely capitalism, specifically one, uh, because people, you don't have to pay um, to have access to theologians that have studied and to to people that have done the work of actually looking at the Greek and the Hebrew and learning it. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you don't have to pay for that. And though the church tells you that you don't have to pay and you're welcome here, you do, because they ask for your free labor and they ask mm-hmm. for your tithes and they shame you if you don't give it to them. Um, so I don't, I didn't want to create that again. You know, I didn't, I, I wanted to create, you um, spaces that were first safe for people to question everything that they needed to question and second that were accessible to everybody um so i opened up a patron and i started a dollar not because i you know not because i mi- diminish my work or because of any of that just because i um, i want everybody to have access to it mm-hmm. and if i start putting gates to access the work that I do, then the ones that are going to have the less access to it are the ones that are the most marginalized and the ones that I am the most interested in having and in giving them access to this information. Um, So I, you know, that's why I say if we want to disrupt capitalism, I have a patron and if you have the ability to pay me, you should. Um, But if you don't, but you know, because that's disrupting every system. You are paying me so that I can offer this work for those that are the most marginalized in the world. Mm-hmm. You are paying me so that everybody has access. Um, so really what we're doing is collaborating. You have a tool that I do not have. I don't have the money to do this without getting paid, but you have the money to pay me so that I can do it. And they don't have the access to be able to get all the books and read and sit down for four years in school. You know, they, they just don't have the access to do that. But I can actually, I have done the work, so I can actually Kind of like put it in smaller bite sizes mm-hmm. so that everybody can engage with it and swallow it and and mm-hmm. chew on it for a long time. So that's the reason that I love doing it in in um, social media and in platforms that are free mm-hmm. uh, or just really low cost. Um, because I am um, I don't like gates. I don't like things that are behind gates um, that always. That will always leave the most marginalized outside, and my work begins at the most marginalized. It centers the most marginalized. It is for the most marginalized.
0: Right.
1: right.
2: Um, so if it is, I have to, I have to make sure that they have access to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you see your work being inspiring and liberating theological work?
2: Um, well, like I said, I start at the margins. Um, mm. So the first thing that I that I want my work to do is to free people in the margins from believing things that about themselves that they've been told to believe. Um, I, I want my work to encourage people that are not in the margins, but in the, you know, in the center that are more privileged in society. I wanted to encourage them to move towards the margins to start flattening the hierarchical systems that we have created and that we have allowed because it won't be flattened by the people in the margins moving to the center. Mm. First, that's Mm -hmm. impossible. And second, that that doesn't change anything. The only way that we will flatten hierarchical societies and hierarchical systems is by people in the privileged spaces, in the top of these hierarchies, intentionally moving toward the margins, intentionally saying, this isn't serving us all. Even even though it looks like it's serving the privileged, it's not. Um, Because the moment that you Ignore the marginalized, the moment that you choose to just say, Well, I am okay here, so I don't care about everybody else, is the moment that you lose peace of your humanity, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hope that my work encourages those that are the privileged ones to intentionally move towards the margins. And I hope it gives the people in the margins hope and it keeps the people in the margins uh, a new framework to be able to see themselves properly and not through the systems that have been just uh, oppressing them for so long. Um, so that's, I do what I do for those two reasons, especially for those two reasons, for those, I want to be, this is from Leila Saad. Um, she said once that she wants to, that her goal in life is to become a good ancestor. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's, that became something that I hold dearly to. My goal is to become, to be a good ancestor, to become a good ancestor so that I leave a world that is better, um, for those that are behind me. Because An ancestor, of course, is not just biological children, but you know, anybody that comes behind me, mm. I need to leave a world that's better, a world that's closer to heaven on earth, that's safer for everybody. Mm. Um, so that's what I hope my word is doing. My work is doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Last question How can listeners get connected to you and your work?
2: Oh, you can find me on Patreon, like I said. Um, and I don't share a lot on Patreon, really, because my work is like I said, completely public, mostly mm-hmm. I just put their uh, resources and kind of random thoughts that I have. Um, but you can find all of my work on Instagram, a lot of it on Twitter. Um, and I have to go back to YouTube. I just don't have the time right now because Mm -hmm. I'm homeschooling, not homeschooling, but distance learning Mm -hmm. for children. But, um, but yeah, you can find me on all social media platforms and, um, I love to reply to DMs and it take, it might take me a minute, but I (laughs) get to all of my DMs. So, um, yeah, that's how you can find
1: me. Wonderful. Well, Joe, I think your work is absolutely wonderful. It's been helpful for my myself and I know for thousands of others. And so just thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about it. Uh, and uh, we'll con- stay connected over the next several years and I'll even learn even more. I love it. Yes. Thank you.
0: Up and giddy up. even after my best ain't good enough. I'm still hungry but fed up, trying not to let up, trying not to be in my fields when I'm in this field. But shit get real when you try not to get killed As I stand still
1: in front of the steel If you'd like to connect with both Joe and Jelani and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, Go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.
0: Yeah, you know, still learning not to make it all about myself. That's how you drown without asking. For-